Chapter Sixteen of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter Sixteen, Below Zero. It is an old tale that Fahrenheit took as the zero of his thermometer the lowest temperature which was observed by him at Danzig during the winter of seventeen o nine, and one of his contemporaries remarks that nature never produced a cold beyond zero. This is quite a mistaken view, for plenty of cases are on record in which considerably lower temperatures have been observed as the direct result of natural cold. By artificial methods it is possible to realize a much greater degree of cold, and within the last ten years temperatures of about minus four hundred degrees Fahrenheit have been reached. As the mercury in our thermometers freezes at about minus forty degrees Fahrenheit, the reader will see that a lowering of the temperature to minus four hundred degrees brings us to altogether new conditions. The way in which chemists and physicists have gradually pushed forward in the region of low temperatures is very remarkable, and their discoveries are not only of fascinating interest to the student of nature, but have in some cases proved of practical and commercial value. The ambition to get farthest north has led to many thrilling adventures, but the Arctic exploration carried out recently in the laboratories of England and the continent is not a whit less romantic. The first step in the direction of low temperatures is taken when we can start with substances at the ordinary temperature, and either by utilizing some inherent property of these substances, or by treating them in some special way, induce the temperature to fall, say, below the freezing point of water. The mere bringing together of two substances may lead to either a rise or a fall of temperature. The reader may remember the reference made in a previous chapter to the fact that when sulfuric acid and water are mixed, so much heat is produced that the containing vessel becomes too hot to hold. The opposite effect is frequently observed when other substances are mixed with water. When saltpeter or sal ammoniac, for example, is stirred into water, the cooling effect is very noticeable, and by this simple method quite a considerable fall of temperature is produced. A mixture of these two salts, added to an equal weight of water at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, brings the temperature down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. More marked and more persistent cooling effects are obtained if, instead of adding salts to water, we mix them with powdered ice or snow. Anyone who procures common salt and snow, stirs them up well in the proper proportions, and puts a thermometer in the mixture, will see the mercury fall below zero Fahrenheit. Such a freezing mixture may be used not only for getting a low temperature in scientific experiments, but also for the equally practical, if less exalted, object of making ices. The question may very naturally be put, why should the mere bringing together of salt and snow result in such a marked fall of temperature? The answer to this question is very closely connected with what was said in a previous chapter about the melting point of alloys. Attention was then directed to the fact that the melting point of any metal is lowered by the presence of another metal. To the case of ice and salt, a similar rule applies. Every schoolboy knows that pure water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees centigrade, but it is a curious fact that water containing salt does not freeze until a lower temperature has been reached. That means that a mixture of snow and a little solid salt should, strictly speaking, be in the liquid condition at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. There cannot, therefore, be true equilibrium between snow and salt at this temperature. Now, in nature, things are always trying to get into the most stable condition possible, in other words, to reach their true equilibrium. Water finds its own level, 
a hot and a cold object put side by side gradually and of their own accord assume the same temperature while positive and negative electricity unite whenever they get the opportunity similarly snow and salt when mixed together at thirty two degrees fahrenheit do their best to get into that condition which nature has prescribed as the most stable one for them at that temperature the result is that the snow melts and the salt dissolves in the melted ice now both these processes use up heat as they take place spontaneously this heat is taken from the surroundings and the temperature of the mixture and of the containing vessel falls the reader will at once admit that heat is required to melt snow and he will see that the addition of salt is an ingenious way of persuading the snow to melt and so to abstract a definite amount of heat from its surroundings for the same quantity of heat is always required to melt a pound of snow whatever be the way in which we cause the melting to take place so far as we have gone then methods of producing cold depend either on dissolving a solid in a liquid or on making a solid melt by a little scientific stratagem but just as we can utilize the change of solid into liquid as means of reaching lower temperatures so we can employ another change of state for the same purpose the change namely in which a liquid passes into the condition of a vapor we usually convert a liquid into a gas or vapor by heating it for the conversion of water at two hundred twelve degrees fahrenheit into steam at two hundred twelve degrees heat is as necessary as it is for the conversion of ice or snow at thirty two degrees fahrenheit into water at the same temperature evaporation then that is the process by which a liquid is changed into a vapor only takes place when heat is supplied if by any means we can cause evaporation to take place without the external application of heat then the necessary heat will be taken from the evaporating liquid itself and its surroundings under these circumstances evaporation produces cold a very simple way of causing a volatile liquid to evaporate rapidly without heating is to blow a strong current of air through it that by this method a considerable reduction of temperature may take place can be shown by a very simple experiment a small pool of water is made on the top of a flat wooden block and in this pool is set a flask containing strong ammonia solution a strong current of air is then blown through the liquid with the aid of a bellows the ammonia evaporates rapidly and before long the flask is frozen hard to the block with these two general ways of producing cold at their disposal faraday and other chemists after him have been able to obtain in the liquid state many substances which exist ordinarily as invisible gases the point to which the temperature of a gas must be lowered before it begins to liquefy will of course vary from one case to another if we could imagine the temperature of our globe as being normally about two hundred fifty degrees fahrenheit then water would exist only in the form of vapor or steam and in order to liquefy it we should have to bring the temperature below two hundred and twelve degrees the boiling point of water at any temperature lower than two hundred twelve degrees steam will condense under the ordinary pressure of the atmosphere now we must remember that every other liquid has its own boiling point and substances which we know as gases are simply liquids whose boiling points are at a temperature lower than that prevailing on the surface of the globe sulphur dioxide for example the colorless choking gas which is produced when sulphur is burned is very easily obtained as a liquid at temperatures not much below the freezing point of water the boiling point of this liquid sulphur dioxide is eighteen degrees fahrenheit under the ordinary pressure so that when the gas is passed through a tube surrounded by a freezing mixture of ice and salt 
it condenses to the liquid form, just as steam would do if it were passed through a tube surrounded by cold water. It is, in fact, quite easy to obtain liquid sulfur dioxide, and it is now sold in siphons, just as if it were so much soda water. When we come to gases like ammonia and carbon dioxide, which are less easily condensed, it is found advisable to use high pressure as an aid to liquefaction. The reader will understand the object of this if he remembers that the boiling point of a liquid gradually rises with the pressure to which it is exposed. For example, water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit under a pressure of one atmosphere, but at 250 degrees when the pressure is two atmospheres. Conversely, then, when a gas is kept under high pressure, less cooling is necessary to bring it below its boiling point. By the combined application of cooling and compression, both ammonia and carbon dioxide are readily obtained in the liquid form, and they are now commercial articles sold in steel bottles or cylinders. With the aid of liquid ammonia and liquid carbon dioxide, we are able to go a long step farther in realizing low temperatures, for the cold produced by their rapid evaporation is very intense. This is well shown by what happens when the tap of a liquid carbon dioxide bottle is opened. The liquid is forced out in a fine jet by the high pressure which prevails in the bottle, and the cold produced by the evaporation of the outer portion of the jet is so great that the inner portions are solidified to a white, snow-like powder. If a coarse canvas bag is tied over the nozzle of the bottle while the liquid is escaping, a quantity of this curious solid carbon dioxide may be collected. Carbonic acid snow, as we may call it, can be placed on the hand without danger, but if pressed into the skin, a serious blister is produced, the effect being pretty much the same as that caused by a red-hot metal rod. A number of interesting experiments can be made with solid carbon dioxide. If, for example, some of it is placed on the top of a little mercury in a dish, and some methylated spirit or ether is added, the mercury is very quickly frozen to a hard mass. In fact, the temperature reached in this way is as low as minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit, and if a mixture of ether and carbonic acid snow is made to evaporate very rapidly by connection with a suction pump, the temperature reached is considerably lower still. The temperature of minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit just mentioned is the boiling point of liquid carbon dioxide under atmospheric pressure. This substance is a conspicuous example of what may be called cold boiling liquids, and the reader will see that boiling does not necessarily mean a high temperature. That liquid carbon dioxide kept in an open vessel is very cold can be simply shown by thrusting a piece of metal into it. There is a hissing and a bubbling exactly similar to what is observed when a red-hot poker is thrust into water, so that, relatively to the piece of metal, which is at the ordinary temperature, liquid carbon dioxide is exceedingly cold. For purposes of refrigeration, in ice-making and cold storage, liquid ammonia is very largely used nowadays. Rapid evaporation of this liquid under a suction pump gives a very low temperature, and if brine is circulated round the pipes in which the evaporation is taking place, it is rendered so cold that water may be frozen by it in large quantities. The success of chemists in liquefying such gases as carbon dioxide and ammonia is now overshadowed by the greater achievements of the last ten or fifteen years, during which period liquid air and liquid hydrogen have been produced in quantity. This has become possible by the introduction of an altogether new principle in gas-liquefying machines, a principle which deserves a few words of explanation. 
We regard a gas as consisting of an enormous number of separate particles or molecules, moving rapidly in all directions. Under ordinary conditions, the total volume of the molecules is very much less than the space in which they move. In other words, the molecules are, relatively and on the average, not very close to each other. When, however, the gas is compressed, the molecules are crowded together, and they come within range of each other's attraction. Each molecule exerts an attractive force on its neighbors, and is in turn attracted by them, so that when a highly compressed gas is allowed to expand, there is a social force resisting the separation of the molecules which is involved in the expansion. In overcoming this social force, work must be done, and for the performance of this work heat is required. This heat is taken mostly from the gas itself, which therefore exhibits the phenomenon of self-cooling. All this may be put more definitely and practically by saying that when highly compressed air is allowed to expand through a small nozzle or a porous plug, it becomes slightly colder. In the actual machines for making liquid air, the device is further adopted for allowing the expanded and slightly cooled air to circulate round the coil of tubing through which the next lot of compressed air is approaching the nozzle. In such a regenerative process, the cooling effects are accumulated, and the air which circulates through the machine, alternately compressed and expanded, becomes gradually cooler until at length it condenses and drops into a vessel placed to receive it. A vessel which is to contain liquid air or liquid hydrogen must be specially constructed if it is to be of any use at all. If we were to put liquid air, which boils at minus 347 degrees Fahrenheit, in an ordinary glass vessel, we should very shortly see the last of it, owing to the heat communicated through the walls of the vessel. That is, in fact, exactly what would happen if we put a glass of water in a hot air bath kept at 400 or 500 degrees. Such a communication of heat, however, may be very much diminished, as Professor Dewar has shown, by using double-walled vessels and removing the air from the space between the walls. Sections of two such vessels, a tube and a flask, are shown in figure 9. The importance of removing the air from the space between the walls will be realized when it is remembered that under ordinary circumstances that space is filled with molecules of oxygen and nitrogen rushing hither and thither. With the outer wall near the temperature of the atmosphere, and the inner one in contact with liquid air, these molecules act like an army of heat carriers. Each molecule, as it strikes the outer wall, will take up so much heat, which sooner or later it delivers up to the inner wall, only to return for a fresh supply. When the air is left in the intervening space, the transfer of heat is therefore very rapidly effected, and the liquid air in the vessel soon evaporates. When this space, however, is rendered free from air, the heat-carrying molecules are removed, and the inner tube is more perfectly cut off from any heat exchange with the atmosphere. The insulation of the inner tube is made still more complete by silvering the inside of the outer one, for at such a bright surface the heat rays are reflected. In a Dewar vacuum flask, surrounded by a non-conducting material like cotton wool, liquid air may be kept for over twenty-four hours, and the examination of its properties is thus rendered possible. Not only is it possible to study the properties of liquid air itself, but we can see how other substances behave when cooled to the temperature of liquid air. Their behavior, then, is frequently quite different from what it is under ordinary conditions. Grass, leaves of plants, and India rubber, for example, become so brittle when kept for a short time at the temperature of liquid air that they can easily be powdered in a mortar. An egg, after immersion in this wonderful medium, becomes so hard-boiled 
that it may be severely knocked about without being damaged. Chemicals, too, which react vigorously at the ordinary temperature, become mutually callous when cooled to the boiling point of liquid air. It has just been stated that liquid air boils at minus 347 degrees Fahrenheit, but by boiling under reduced pressure, the temperature is lowered to a point at which the air of the atmosphere will condense straight away. This may be very simply and very beautifully shown in the following manner. A Dewar vacuum tube, see figure 10, filled to the extent of two-thirds with liquid air, is provided with a cork. Through this cork there are passed, one, an empty glass tube A, closed at the bottom and dipping into the liquid air, two, a bent tube B, open at both ends, and leading to the vacuum pump. When the latter is turned on, the liquid air in the vacuum vessel begins to boil vigorously under the reduced pressure, and in consequence of the low temperature thus produced, air gradually condenses and collects as a liquid in the previously empty tube A. That, of course, is the natural result of bringing the temperature of the air in A below its boiling point. The composition of liquid air is not quite the same as that of gaseous air, for the simple reason that oxygen is rather more easily condensed than nitrogen, so that liquid air contains a higher proportion of the former. Further, if liquid air is allowed to evaporate slowly, it becomes very much richer in oxygen, for the nitrogen is the more volatile constituent, and passes off more readily, leaving behind a liquid with a higher proportion of oxygen. On this fact is based a method for the extraction of oxygen from the atmosphere. More wonderful even than liquid air is liquid hydrogen. It is more difficult to prepare, for in applying the regenerative cooling process to hydrogen, it is necessary, first of all, to cool the compressed gas to a low temperature by means of liquid air before it is allowed to issue from the nozzle of the apparatus. Dewar, however, has made considerable quantities of liquid hydrogen, and on one occasion over a gallon of the substance, made in his laboratory, was carried through the streets of London to the rooms of the Royal Society. This quantity would weigh only about 11 ounces, for liquid hydrogen is by far the lightest liquid known to the chemist. Bulk for bulk, it is only one-fourteenth as heavy as water. Some very interesting experiments have been made at these extremely low temperatures on the vitality of bacteria and seeds. Typical bacteria were exposed for a number of hours to the temperature of liquid air, but their vitality was not destroyed by this treatment. Barley and peas have been kept for six hours in the liquid itself, and yet when they were sown, subsequently in the ordinary way, no falling off in the power of growth could be detected. It is possible to get a very high vacuum in a closed glass tube by simply immersing one end of it in liquid hydrogen. The boiling point of the latter is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit lower than the boiling point of liquid air, and the mere contact of one end of the tube with the liquid hydrogen is sufficient to condense the air which it contains so completely that none is left in the upper part. The attainment of such low temperatures has raised the very interesting question as to what prospect there is of ever reaching the absolute zero. On various grounds, chemists and physicists believe that at a certain temperature, minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit, the existence of a gas as such would cease to be possible. The movements of the molecules, which we have learned to regard as characteristic of a gas, would be so paralyzed by the intense cold as to stop altogether. The chill of death would settle on their activity. This temperature is called the absolute zero, and is in the eyes of low-temperature investigators what the North Pole is to the Arctic explorers. 
In this connection, the year 1908 will be remembered as the year in which helium, the most obstinately gaseous substance known, was reduced to the liquid state. The labor expended in procuring even so little as two ounces of liquid helium can hardly be appreciated by the lay reader, but it may be mentioned that the preliminaries consisted in the preparation of sixteen gallons of liquid air and four and a half gallons of liquid hydrogen. By boiling liquefied helium under reduced pressure, the temperature of minus 454 degrees Fahrenheit was reached, only six degrees from the absolute zero. It might therefore be thought that this interesting point was practically within reach, for an interval of six degrees does not seem a very serious obstacle. At these low temperatures, however, an advance of even one degree is a very great matter, and it must be confessed that there is no immediate prospect of reaching the chilly goal. End of chapter 16